0: It is about inclusion of everyone, Mm -hmm. all the ingredients in the salad.
1: So that we get a better salad. Like, come on.
2: We got to address the suburban women problem because it's real.
3: Welcome to the suburban women problem, a podcast from
4: red wine and blue. Hi everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Vinman. I'm Jasmine Clark. I'm Amanda Weinstein. And you're listening to The Suburban Women Problem. Across the country, we've seen lawmakers silenced, first with the three representatives in Tennessee, and now in Montana with Representative Zoe Zephyr. It's like Republicans want to silence anyone who isn't a straight, white, cisgender Christian. But, you know, diversity of this country is what makes us strong. So this week I talked to Liz Soyan Kleinrock about her work in anti-bias and DEI education. Liz also shared some things about the Asian American community as we go into May, which is Asian American and Pacific Islander month. And before Liz, we'll hear from Amanda about her chat with Erica Marquardt, a high school student who helped plan a diversity event in her school. Erica is still in school, so she couldn't join us at our normal recording time, but Amanda met with her on Zoom a few days ago, and I can't wait to hear their conversation. So let's get into it. Should we start with what happened in Montana? Did they learn nothing from Tennessee? I mean, I think they're sort of incapable of learning anything. I mean, and I mean that that's
1: accurate. (laughs) True.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think they're incapable of learning because it's a performance for a very limited number of people.
0: Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I think that I don't really care what everyone else thinks, um, as long as the people that they do care what they think. Are cheering them on
1: exactly and even though that's a very (laughs)
0: small amount of people um that's who they're catering to right now while everyone else is looking at them in horror like what are you doing but in this case it's actually very interesting because you know in tennessee they voted to expel the three uh or two of the three eventually that's what happened based on a very flimsy argument that rules were broken and there was like a quote insurrection worse than January 6th, which we all know is ridiculous. But what happened in Montana wasn't even that. No, they just don't like her. It literally was just like, we don't like what she said. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to censor her, make it to where she cannot speak for the remainder of the year and make it to where her constituents no longer have full representation. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how this is not a violation of her first amendment rights. I mean, this this is literally what the first amendment is all about. You cannot use the full force of the government to punish me because I said something you don't like. Like that's what the first amendment is about.
1: But in Montana, they were really blatant about banning Rep Zoe Zephyr from the Montana chamber, not only for what she said, but also they kind of made it a little more clear Mm -hmm. that they did it for who she is. Absolutely. So She's the first openly trans state rep in Montana, and they don't want to hear her opinion because she's the first openly trans rep in the state of Montana. And they don't want to hear what she has to say about being trans. Not that her experience would have anything to bring to the table that they maybe can't bring to the table. I mean, but it was clear in Tennessee. They also expelled two of the reps for who they are. They just did it in a,
4: no, I I mean, absolutely. I think in Montana, there was, there was not even like the pretense of trying to, so I don't, I have a very lovely daughter and I mean, everything is fine. She is very, very wonderful, but sometimes, you know, we have some impulse control issues because she's 12. And
1: (laughs) so things, I mean, don't we all (laughs) some more than others.
4: So sometimes she will say or do things. And then she tries to walk it back with an excuse that, yeah, didn't really hold water. Because when you make the explanation or the excuse afterwards, it's a little hard just to like, you know, reverse engineer that. That's what I feel like was absolutely done in Tennessee. Right. But in Montana, I don't even think they're trying. And this is a place where, you know, I've, I've heard people say, I don't want to get caught up in this. This is ridiculous. I mean, that's it's the same as people say, I don't. I don't get involved in politics. I don't care about politics. Oh, but politics cares about you. This stuff cares about you. This is going to come and affect you. And I mean, I think that's what the reason why we do this podcast is to show you why and how it matters on, you know, a very on an everyday basis for all Americans. I mean, so she's suing that. Yeah, I was gonna say
1: So she's suing them, but do you know who else should be suing? It's the people she represents. Like yep, wasn't, thank you. wasn't representation or taxation without representation. Wasn't that kind of a bad thing that we learned about in school? The like whole
0: thing. Yes. <laughs> not
1: only are we taxing people without allowing them to be represented, we aren't getting voices from Americans. So there's a lot of Americans who aren't being representative and trans youth are absolutely not being represented. Yes. And so what that means is that they can't get the healthcare that they need and there's a lot of information about the healthcare that they need it has been so blown out of proportion that a lot of the healthcare that they need is just mental health care and mental health care for the things that they specifically are facing dealing with being trans youth. And we have politicians taking that away from them. And we have them along with, you know, Moms for Liberty claiming that any type of health care for someone who is trans is going to be cutting their genitals off when that's just not true. It's like
0: they're ignorant on purpose. I want to believe that they're ignorant and that they don't know that that's not true. But I really believe that they know that's not true, but they know that's what will, mm. you know, get people riled up. Yep,
4: absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, that, that's
1: the playbook.
0: Yeah. Because, I mean, the overwhelming majority of transgender youth do not get things such as surgery. No. They just don't.
1: I saw an estimate that it was like 200 in the nation that got yeah. a surgery. The whole country. And even yeah. then the surgery could involve breast implants, which we Apparently, I have no problem for minors as long as it's for... But there's cisgender. Yeah, cisgender is fine. Yes, but we do have a problem if they're trans.
4: And I'm just going to take a moment here to define cisgender because for a long time, I didn't know what it meant. So no shame if you don't, but it just means that you identify as the gender to which you were born. So um, my my nephew kept talking about it. And I thought it was like some word that he learned on TikTok that wasn't really a word. So I kind of thought that for a year, just to be totally honest with you, until I realized I heard someone else say it. And then I was like, Oh, he's not making that up.
1: I have had trolls on Twitter say that it is a made up word. And I was like, all words are made up. Well, all (laughs) words, all all, all words are actually made up. Like a tree is only a tree because I called it that. But like, you know, in other countries, they call it something else. Like all words are made up. And this is the word we have made up to define this thing so that we can communicate with each other. Yes.
0: And it's a scientific term. Like I can, I can say with uh, certainty that cis and trans are very scientific terms. We use it in organic chemistry. We use it in molecular biology. We use it in cell biology. That's why I didn't uh, know what it was. I <laughs> use the the prefixes cis and trans for lots of different things. And so, no, it is not just something that someone randomly made up. It does follow an actual like there is basis for this in science. So, just want to. Throw that out there for those people who that's are some just knowledge like, you just threw down.
4: <laughs> yeah, my I'm I did not know that. I I learned something right now. Um, that that's very powerful. It it's, I mean, it's obviously a scientific term in the, you know, biological world. I wonder why that's necessary. Oh, because it exists. Because even though yes. we don't talk about things, they exist. And, <laughs> and that's what's so hard in this moment. of you have this generation that's pushing us. Pushing our boundaries to talk about things we don't, we haven't experienced, we might not understand. Mm. They're teaching us. And for some people, that's just like a bridge too far. They can't handle the idea that their children are teaching them something new. And that reminds me before we were talking, um, before we got on, we were talking about book bands and my friend Brad Meltzer made a really powerful video. I don't I saw it on Instagram. I guess Amanda apparently doesn't understand Instagram. Um speaking of not understanding <laughs> things, different things. I love Instagram. <laughs> it's it's like this, you know, he made this very powerful video, but the gist of it was book bands throughout history are always about people trying to stay in power and they don't want you to have information and his first was Uncle Tom's Cabin and that was the first by Harriet Beecher Stowe the first book to be banned and the first book to you know to come across this in the United States I assume there are other books banned in other countries but um, you know but you know think about that just on a very basic level that that is where we are all of these measures are really meant to not, you know, foster communication
0: and talking and learning, but just to keep people in the dark. I think that Gen Z and just the younger, you know, generations are scaring the pants off of older people. Yeah. They feel like they can't keep up. I keep seeing these like proposals of how we can stop Gen Z from participating in our elections? And you know, there are things like, oh, we need to raise the voting age to twenty-one and reinstitute the draft. What I'm seeing things like, hey, let's uh, you know, ban children from being able to use social media. And while I understand the gist of that, I think the underlying motive is this is how they are getting their messages out Mm -hmm. and they are so effective at it. So we need to slow this down. Mm -hmm. And I think that they just underestimate just how driven younger people are to get their message out and to get things done. And the more you try to stop them, the more you try to ban things, the more you try to undermine them, not only do you lose them, as far as them now seeing you as being on the opposite side of, you know, the things that they care about, you also lose them because they're leaving you in the dust because they're going to figure it out on their own. A hundred. Mm-hmm. And there's
1: like mm-hmm. a constant strategy from the right to co-parent with everyone. Yes. Like if they don't <laughs> oh want their kid on social media, you don't have to buy your kid a phone and yep. you don't have to buy them an iPad. You don't even have to give them internet. Like, this is quite easy if you don't want your own child not on social media. But I kind of think it should be my choice as a parent whether or not my child is on social media and if that's healthy for my child. And there are a lot there are some bad things about social media. We know this. There are also some great things. It's a great way for trans youth to find other kids who are trans, because if you're the only trans kid in your school, You can't connect with someone else at school about being trans. You need social media or another way to connect with other kids. And they're
0: taking that away from a lot of kids along with the books. Yeah. So you don't have the books. You don't have a way to connect like books, social media,
1: whether or not you can seek out mental health care if your kid is trans. All of this is gone so far, and I hope we can see it as extreme, but as an example of how far it's gone. In Ohio, they were debating about whether or not trans kids should be get this, should even get gender affirming care, which includes things like mental health care. And they ha- they went up there to say that all of the non-Christian reps, like my husband, were had quote demons. They actually said, if you support this type of gender affirming care for parents who want to choose this for their children with their doctors, right, then it must be that you are like, have a demon spirit guiding you to this decision.
0: Demons. Okay, boomer. People are weird. I swear. People very people weird, are so weird. weird. Like, that's not, that is weaponizing Christianity, number mm-hmm. one. And I cannot stand when people do that because- As a Christian, I just find it uh, so unnerving that people use it to do the exact opposite of what it is meant to do, right? Like it is not supposed to be a religion of hate, but that is how they use it. And so that is what has become. And I hear so many people now just Mm -hmm. associating Christianity with hate and with hate groups. And it really does bother me, but I, I completely understand where they're coming from because I cannot deny that that's how it is being used in the mainstream. I, I will not say mainstream, stream but the extremists who have a platform and are able to get their message out to a large swath of people it it gets under my skin so much because it's not what christianity is supposed to be about and literally like we are you cannot go around calling everyone who doesn't agree with us demons Uh, i do think there's some evil people out there but trust me they're not the people who are trying to make sure that children are cared for however they need to be cared for
4: you know, there were times when this is always throughout our history that this has been used. Um, yes, you know, like burning witches, and you know, other other times.
1: We're getting um, there.
0: I feel you know. like we're close. Like I, like oh, oh, yeah, we like,
1: also had a, we also had someone talk about witches in our state house too. So we are. Are you guys there? Okay. I mean, yeah, I
4: say that, but again, <laughs> I, don't I think we are. I posted send help. Yeah, send help. <laughs> well, the governor of Oklahoma. Again, I, I, I live in Florida, not Oklahoma, which I don't know if it's better. But the governor of Oklahoma vetoed a funding bill for OETA, which is the local PBS station, because it overly sexualizes content
0: for children. PBS, y'all. PBS. I mean, are people even watching that? What is the sexual content? Right? Are people asking for this? I'm just, I'm just trying to figure it out.
4: Absolutely. And I think now is a good time uh, for Amanda to to listen to your conversation with Erica about her school's diversity program. Like I mentioned earlier, she couldn't join us at her normal recording time because she needs to be in school. Um, She's a high school student and all of us moms really appreciate her commitment to attending class. (laughs) But I am excited to hear about her school's DEI program and why that was so important to Erica and her classmates.
1: Our troublemaker today is a high school student who helped create and run an event at her school called the Many Cultures One Bison Unity Summit. Erica Marquardt, thanks for joining me today.
5: Thank you. I'm excited to join you too.
1: This is so fun. So we love having our young people on and we love hearing what you have to say. And we know you guys have so much to say. So I'd love to hear more about Many Cultures One Bison. What is that event all about?
5: It's a program that promotes diversity and inclusivity at Beechwood High School, and it was brought back, actually. We had it back in 2017, I think, when there was some conflicts at our school, and we brought it back recently to, like, reboost the school morale, and it's been working really well, I thought. In the assembly, we had a bunch of different speakers who would talk about topics like you know diversity. There was one, a neurodiversity speaker, um, Asian-American diversity too. There was also self humility. There was a lot of different speakers with a variety of topics. We talked a lot about problems at our school, personal stuff, It was really interesting because you got to talk to a lot of people that you wouldn't normally talk to, and the rooms were randomly assigned.
1: That's awesome. So I love that it was organized by students like yourself. And why was it important to plan a diversity event? And why is it important for students to help with the planning?
5: So it's important for students to help with the planning because otherwise the teachers might not know what, like... Like they know a lot, obviously, but they don't have like sort of the inside scoop that a lot of students do. So Mm -hmm. it's really great that the students can fill in the nuances that teachers can't.
1: That's great. I think that's such an important point that many of us older people, we went to high school one time, but, you know, we might not know exactly what it's like being in high school now. Being in high school now, I think is, you know, different than when I was in high school. So it's important, you know, for students to shed light on that. So what has been the response from the adults in the community and have you felt support from parents and teachers or did you get any pushback from anyone?
5: So I did get a couple of comments from teachers about how like we're taking another day to like miss learning or miss like content that, you know, we should be learning for like the AP test. A lot of the parents were calling their kids out of school saying that they didn't have to come that day because it wasn't like learning. But other than that, like this teachers who were part of the program were really, really encouraging and inspiring and they were all great.
1: Wow. So they didn't think this was learning. So why do you think, why do you think that this is learning and could be part of their learning?
5: I think it should be part of everybody's learning as we are all humans and we all live on this planet together and we should all like know about each other and we should all be taught about diversity because we're all so different and diverse human beings.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And it probably makes it a lot easier just to be at school and be in the classrooms when you can find more commonality with people around you and kind of respect the diversity that is in that classroom.
5: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So there's an analogy I've read about America being a salad bowl as opposed to a melting pot where a melting pot implies that we're all kind of assimilating and becoming the same. Whereas with a salad bowl, we can celebrate our differences and how we all bring something special to the table. So what are your thoughts about how schools can celebrate differences while still feeling united?
5: I think it's really easy to talk about diversity and to want diversity to become a part of your school district and your community, but it's really hard to put that like, thought into action and that talk into action. We have a lot of different groups at Beachwood High School. Like, We have the Asian Affinity Group. We have the GSA.
1: What's the GSA?
5: So the GSA is the Gender Sexuality Alliance. Hmm. I think we have for African-Americans, we have an affinity group. They're about educating people who aren't a part of those groups, how they would like us to like address a lot of like taboo topics, Hmm. I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's important. I think a lot of adults think you guys can't talk about these issues, but it seems like you're telling us that you can.
5: Yeah, we can. And also it brings a sense of belonging amongst these groups that they're not alone that, you know, there's people like them out there. And I think that's really important.
1: That's important. Nobody wants to feel alone. So most of our listeners are suburban women. So a lot of moms of students just like you. (laughs) So how can all of us moms and parents support diversity in our kids' schools?
5: So I think maybe like at home, I think education is the most important part because I go to school every day. And so I see a lot of kids who are really ignorant. And I think I'm like thinking, where are these kids' parents and why aren't, why weren't they told this? Like, what are they doing? Like,
1: yeah, that's a good point. We should be having these conversations at home, not just schools.
5: Exactly. And I think that's very important because then if you have these, if you start these conversations at home with people that your kids know and trust, then it's really, it's a lot easier for us to have them in school.
1: I agree. Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Oh my God. Thank you. I had so much fun.
1: Thank you, Erica. You were great.
0: I think my favorite part was the part where she was like, why is the only time you're having this conversation at school? Yes. Like I, that just like really stood out to me. I'm like, yeah, come on parents. Like yes, these kids not only should be having these conversations at home, but they want to have these conversations at home. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's the important thing.
4: It's, it's cheesy to say in the United States that we're we're stronger because of our differences. But the reality is, anywhere that I have been, that's something that people do talk about, about the United States. When I lived in Israel, particularly when I worked in the Palestinian territories, there were so many people who maybe didn't agree with us politically, let me say that delicately, but they all wanted to come to the United States, which really boggled my mind, like, why do you want to go there if you don't like us? But it was the opportunity. It was also that they wouldn't be so different because there were people from all over. Yeah. My husband is my daughter's a first generation American and his family to be born in the United States. He's a naturalized citizen. His father sacrificed a great deal to bring his family here. So that, that kind of like, People sacrifice to come to the United States, of course, they're going to do everything to work, to make it work, to work hard, to be here, to stay here, because it was worth that for them. And I think that's something we should celebrate in terms of like, hey, let's listen to the stories. Let's see why it's special to them. And hey, and here's me, who my family has lived in the United States for many different generations. Why it's special to me, also, right? Um, because it, it's it's special to me in a different way. But that's the diversity. That's what we need to talk about, and we need to talk about how can it be more equal to everyone.
0: And so the diversity side says, yes, we do have differences. And it's okay to have differences. And that's what makes America, America. As you said, other people look at our country and they're like, wow, that's amazing. They have all these people and they like live amongst each other. Like, that's a really cool thing that they're able to do. That's diversity. But I think what's uh, just as important, if not more important, is the inclusion. The inclusion is this idea that uh when you have a salad um no one just wants to like eat the lettuce and then eat the tomatoes and then eat the cheese (laughs) and then eat the cucumbers like in separate bowls we put it all together and we include it because we realize that all of those different flavors together Mm -hmm. is what makes the salad amazing yeah and Mm -hmm. so the inclusion is yeah Diversity is we have all these different ingredients. Inclusion is they're all in the same bowl Mm -hmm. and they're all doing their part in the bowl. And we accept and love each part of the salad in the bowl together.
1: Oh, that's such a good point. So going with the food, I took my students on a walking tour of Akron. And one of the things that they said that they wished Akron had more of is, and this is coming from uh, a white student saying, I wish we had more ethnic grocery stores and more ethnic restaurants. And we had more diversity in downtown so that we had all of these different things to do. And, you know, hamburgers might be your favorite food, but you probably aren't going to eat them every day. And so it was interesting to hear <laughs> students be like,
0: no, I mean, no, don't do that.
1: But to hear students say like, I like the diversity. It makes your city like more interesting and cool. And we want that and we want more of that.
0: Yes, I love that.
1: Okay,
4: well, now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have my interview with Liz Sohian Kleinrock.
3: Mother's Day is coming up soon, and we can't think of a better way to celebrate than by joining the hosts of the Suburban Women Problem for our 100th episode. The virtual event will feature Heather Cox Richardson to discuss the history of moms in politics and the power of suburban women. Tickets are limited, so make sure you get one soon for yourself and for a mom in your life. You can find more info and buy your ticket by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you follow Red Wine and Blue on social media, you might have noticed that this week we're featuring the work of our Ohio organizers. They've been working hard to protect reproductive rights in their state, collecting thousands of signatures to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot in November. If you'd like to support their efforts, please visit restorerowohio.com.
4: Our guest today is an anti-bias and anti-racism educator. She's the author of Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school community. Liz Sohyun Kleinrock, thank you so much for joining me on the Suburban Women Problem. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, I've had fun going through your book. I mean, and I've I've learned so much. You teach about anti-bias and anti-racism. And you're also at the center of several identities yourself which I find fascinating. You're Korean American, Jewish, bisexual and you were adopted as a child. How have the intersections of your identities guided you in your work? I would say that the intersections of who I am it's almost like
2: comical I think when I introduce myself like when I do workshops and I have and I go through like listing all of them I'm like wow this is a really long sentence. <laughs> but truthfully like the intersections of who I am mean everything to this work I don't think that I would be so passionate or care so deeply about this especially when it comes to working with children Mm -hmm. growing up it was you know in retrospect interesting to be Asian American raised in a white presenting family in a very white quadrant of DC which is a historically black city Mm -hmm. um there was not a lot of representation of Asian Americans, particularly even Korean Americans. The only Korean people in our neighborhood ran the dry cleaners, like a couple of blocks away. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about my experiences in school, you know, in the media that I consumed as a kid, there was really nothing that really spoke to who. I was who I am, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: my family's history, my own experiences being adopted, um, any representation of of queer people. Um, And I think because of that erasure, I've cared a lot about making sure that students of all identities are not just seen, but they're also affirmed for who they
4: are. I think that's that's interesting, the point that you brought up, because DC is actually a diverse city, but it's in pockets. So it is very possible to live in a bubble. And I think most people probably do, unfortunately, but not just in DC, in a lot of places. You recently had a really thoughtful post on Instagram about DEI and anti-bias trainings. They can be helpful tools, but if they're not done right, they can sometimes do more harm than good. What does a good DEI training look like? And where can that go wrong?
2: It's a really good question. um, And I really appreciate you know, you highlighting that post because I feel like I was hanging on to a lot of those feelings and opinions for quite some time, and it was it felt very cathartic to get it all out. Um, I had just seen that there were I felt like an increasing number of op-eds being run in very mainstream media outlets, like The New York Times, The Washington Post, have had these pieces of guest authors who are extremely critical of implicit bias training of anything that's labeled anti-racism. Um, and unfortunately, It sounds to me like a lot of folks have had maybe one or two negative experiences and have decided that those experiences, those workshops, therefore speak to all DEI-like trainings. And honestly, I think a really big issue is that DEI anti-racism work has existed for a very long time, but just Mm -hmm. not in mainstream spaces. And so looking at the protest that came out of the spring and summer of 2020 and then schools and companies and organizations doing this mad dash to try to change their systems and to get people educated and expecting that in two years we're supposed to undo Literally hundreds, if not thousands, of years of colorism, anti blackness, anti-Semitism, like all of these different forms of oppression. We have to be realistic, I think. Yeah, I don't
4: mean to laugh, but I mean (laughs) it's the idea that it's possible is preposterous. Um, Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah.
2: And then literally I've gotten feedback after, like, let's say I get hired by a school or a company to do a one hour session. One offs are never my favorite. So I'd say, like, first of all, that's one red flag that we can look out for. If we are dedicating 60 minutes to this enormous Topic and expecting to see these really large cultural shifts.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And I've gotten feedback from folks after, let's say, I do a 60-minute session and people actually say things like, Well, I was expecting to get farther along in dismantling racism after this. So now as a disclaimer, I have to actually say that at the beginning, you know, we're here to really only scratch the tip of the iceberg that for some people were along different places in their own journeys. This work is going to look really different for everybody. But I think mm-hmm. people often really want fast fixes to problems that really require a lot of intention and a lot of thought. And, you know, there's the personal interrogation piece. We look at the larger systems that we're in. We examine our roles, the way we communicate the relationships we hold with other people that takes a lot of time. Um, I think good DEI trainings or effective DEI trainings allow people to really investigate who they are, their own identities, their own upbringings, um, a way to Understand that biases are interestingly like one of our common denominators as people. Doesn't matter like your race, gender, how much money you have, like we all hold biases about certain people, communities, and ideas. And what's really important is that we can start to identify the harmful biases that show up in the way that we interact with people. And if we can start to identify what those are and begin to push back against them, That to me is how we begin to actually make progress. But Mm -hmm. there's a lot of discomfort that certainly comes up in that. I do think that some people, and rightfully so, like I very much used to be in a space where my main dominating emotion was rage when it came to this work. And it's very easy to understand why a lot of people operate from that place. I've also found that when I'm just operating from a place of anger, that I'm not being as mindful when it comes to potentially shaming people. If you are really trying to build capacity for this movement to ensure that it's not just a one-off, to ensure that we're not just solo people in our communities, but we're just trying to bring as many folks along with us as possible, that does require delivering information in a certain kind of way. And I understand tone policing. I understand gaslighting, of course. And it's also a decision that I'm going to make that maybe some of my colleagues don't agree with. But if I am intentionally causing feelings of shame in people who are participating, Mm -hmm. I don't really know what kind of outcome that's going to have. I can definitely predict that there would be a lot more resistance that when people hear fixed statements, like, well, if people are just inherently racist, then why am I even going to bother doing any of this work or there's nothing that I can do about it. There are always things that we can do about it. Um, I also think that using myself as an example, really modeling what that whole learning and unlearning process looks like the mistakes that I've made and what I've been able to learn and do better from them. Um, I even think that one way when we use the term "expert," there is some sort of like fixedness in that, that if you are an expert in something, then you don't have this additional space to make mistakes. You just know everything that's out there. And that's really not the case at all. I'm constantly being you know, educated by friends, from colleagues, even people I don't know through different forms of media and the way that I might intellectualize different types of information, but it's very much a lifelong journey nothing that you're going to be able to completely eradicate in 60 minutes or, you know, two or three hours.
4: I mean, because there's a lot of homework that needs to take place with us as individuals and and it's not quick homework. Um, I think it's, it takes time to sort of sort out your feelings and then go forward from there. So it's definitely, you know, a long process. Well, May is AAPI Heritage Month. AAPI means Asian American and Pacific Islander. And although holidays like AAPI, Black History Month, or Women's History Month can feel performative or inadequate, like shouldn't we be celebrating women and people of color you know all the time, it's a good opportunity to pause and listen to those voices. So what are some biases that the Asian American community has to deal with that we should all be more aware of? You know, when I talk to students, um, one thing
2: that tends to come up is them observing that a lot of the work around anti-racism and racial justice exists along this Black-white binary, especially Mm -hmm. in the United States, Yeah, that people who are Asian or Indigenous or Latinx, Tend to get overlooked. It just seems like it's something that happens between the black community and the white community. Yeah, and there are so many nuances. Um, it's very much just this spectrum, and we have to make sure that we are being actually inclusive when we're talking about anti-racist work. You know, there are a lot of different biases and stereotypes of the Asian American community. Um, one, I think, is viewing all of us as this monolithic group when there are almost 50 different countries within Asia, which means that there are over almost 50 countries from people within the Asian diaspora living in the United States. Mm -hmm. On top of that, Pacific Islander history, heritage experiences are very different than those of people from different regions of Asia. So I think first it's also unfair that they get lumped in, like they deserve their own Platform, They discern their own recognition um, because they often get overshadowed. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that we see a lot here in the States is that whole model minority myth. Um, this idea that was actually coined by a white sociologist out of Berkeley, um, who said that Asians are the ideal immigrant or minority group, like how hardworking, look how industrious they are. And unfortunately this myth, while it seems to be positive is actually incredibly hurtful in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it absolutely creates a wedge between the Asian and the black communities in the United States. It's definitely used to be weaponized against black folks, putting their experiences up against those of Asian Americans mm-hmm. and saying, why can't you succeed in the way that this other um, ethnic or racial subgroup has? Um, We also see the complete erasure of the challenges of the discrimination that Asians and Asian Americans have faced, looking at how the first people to be considered, quote unquote, illegal immigrants were Asians in the United States. It ignores the fact that Asian Americans have long been denied civil rights that we gained the right to vote after Black Americans, after women in the United States. And a lot of that history tends to get looked past because of this assumption that Asians are just inherently successful, hardworking, that we just keep our heads down, that we don't cause a fuss. It's really dehumanizing. Um, But I think in the way that sometimes these stereotypes are leveraged in ways that seem like compliments are very backhanded compliments. We have to also zoom out and take a look at what those stereotypes do to our relationships with other people and other communities in this country.
4: Yeah. So on that note, actually, there are many, uh, I'm sure, but could you share one amazing AAPI historical figure that we all should know more about? Sure. I know Yori Kuchiyama gets a lot more recognition
2: these days, which is amazing. Um, I would also want to highlight Grace Lee Boggs, who was another Asian American activist, um, did most of her work in Detroit. um, And she was absolutely incredible at combining forces, like with her husband, who is an African American man. And I believe that the two of them really created some incredible community partnerships, really trying to bridge gaps between the Asian American and the black community in their city. Mm. And I think that kind of just goes to show also that when we learn about activism in different civil rights movements, it's still very much presented like communities existed in isolation and really only went hard for themselves. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, there've been so many people who have had really amazing legacies in their activism that highlighted intersectionality and trying to bridge um, you know, these connections between groups instead of just viewing people as existing in silos.
4: Yeah, definitely. You've written a lot about allies, advocates, and bystanders, which I love. Um, could you tell our listeners more about those concepts and how they can become agents of change in their communities? It's
5: a great
2: question.
4: and I love talking about this, especially with students, because um, I think that
2: sometimes when we imagine like being a good ally, we almost get this image of like, the superhero cape you put on. And I Mm -hmm. tell students that like, it doesn't require you like throwing your body in front of like a moving train to save somebody. In fact, saving somebody is really against what being an ally, being an advocate is really you know supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. That to be an effective ally, you have to have some awareness of who you are, going back to that identity piece. What are the intersections that make up who you are? What are the parts of, you know, the pieces that you hold that allow you more privilege, And I know that, again, people have big, strong feelings when they hear the word privilege. When I talk about privilege. (laughs) Oh,
4: yes, they do.
2: They do. So many feelings. And I tell students that when I describe privilege, it just means that there are parts of who we are that allow us to navigate the world with more ease and comfort compared to other people. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that we have to feel shame or embarrassment or guilt about this. But when you realize that you have this access or these resources, what's really important is what you do with them. How do you actually spend them? One of the most impactful stories that I have of somebody being a good ally to me is I found myself at this Jewish celebration knowing that as a Korean person that I do not look like what a lot of people imagine when I think about Jewish people. Um, And I was on the receiving end of some very uncomfortable questions from another guest there and a friend of mine um, who was standing nearby at some point in the conversation, just leaned over and said like, Hey, are you good? Mm. It took two seconds for her to say that. But in that moment I knew she was aware of the situation she was aware of the privileges that she held, that she was ready to interrupt and tap in so I could tap out if I wanted, and that she was still giving me the opportunity to make my own decision. She wasn't going to make that decision for me. Mm-hmm. And that one has really always stuck with me. And that's the example that I always talk about in workshops or you know, when I'm teaching kids, um, that it doesn't have to be this really big, grand, dramatic gesture. It's about having awareness and how you show up in those moments, that you're not here to exercise like your belief that, you know, better that you're here to save anybody, but it's really, how can we support in solidarity? What are we willing to risk? Um, How are we willing to work in partnership, not for people, but with other people?
4: I love it. And what about advocates and bystanders? Could you explain those a little bit? Sure. So when I think about advocacy, it's people who
2: are using their voices or acting in a particular way to advocate for the maximization of benefit for other people and to minimize harm. Mm -hmm. And that can be applied across any identity, any topic, but something that's very deeply rooted in action. And when it comes to bystanders, You know, we can look at historical examples. We can look at the things that happen day to day in our social circles or, you know, online or in our schools. But when you witness harm happening, what do you do? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: It's so easy to do or say the right thing when cued to do it. But when those moments come up, when you're not expecting it, how do we show up? Yeah. And often that's a lot of the practice that I like to do when I facilitate workshops. Sometimes I'll say like, you know, running scenarios or running through, you know, sentence starters feels kind of cheesy or unnatural to people, but it's still developing that muscle memory. Because I think we've all had these moments when maybe we witness something said or done we knew it wasn't okay, but we didn't do anything. And then you end up lying in bed at night for the next week, staring at the ceiling, wishing that you'd said something different, like rerunning that scenario in your head over and over. Yeah. So how can we avoid ending up in situations like that?
4: <laughs> I love it. And I would guess that students with with this kind of presentation are much more receptive because it's it's giving them the agency and giving them the tools to figure out what's best for them not saying you have to do this, and there has to be some kind of quota. And that's just not what DEI training is. And I completely agree that it's been mischaracterized in so many ways, by people either with bad experience, or people with no experience. But you know, we've all been in trainings that were kind of dreadful. So I mean, I think it's just kind of surmising what it's like, but that's not necessarily the case. Well, this has been a lovely conversation. It is, um, you've, I think informed us so well, but now we like to do our rapid fire questions that have nothing to do with everything we've talked about. Are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, it's only April, but what has been your favorite pop culture moment so far this year? Oh my God. This is the most timely question. Cause I would absolutely say the uh,
2: terrible love is blind live reunion that was supposed to air at 8 PM <laughs> last night was on two hours late and then was just such a train wreck. I cannot stop looking at articles, tweets about it. It's, I can't look away. I wish I could.
4: I mean, the great thing about that is just learning the number of people who watch Love is Blind. I mean, that's like a- So many people. (laughs) subset of the the pop culture moment uh, that happened. Uh, What is your favorite place to travel?
2: I would say Korea. I'm obviously very biased. I love Korea. And outside of that, I would say Iceland. Um, I've been there twice. My partner and I got engaged there and it will just always be very near and dear to my heart. It's also beautiful. I've heard shockingly beautiful. Do you have any pets? I do. I have two bunnies. Ah. Uh, Their names are Epiphany and Blue. I've had them for a couple of years. Um, And we recently took in an alley cat that we had been kind of informally feeding for a couple months. And now he lives with us.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What's the best thing about being a teacher? Kids are
2: wonderful. They are. They are so funny and curious and they are draining and yet still (laughs) energy giving at the same time. They're more excited. They're Uh, more willing to be wrong, Mm -hmm. which I really appreciate. Yeah. And they're just more thoughtful. Like when I have conversations with kids about all the things happening in the world, I feel hopeful. I feel like their things are going
4: to get better. I hope fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) I, I completely agree with you. I feel the same. Well, that's the end of our rapid fire questions, but first, can you let people know where to find out where to find you and to find out more about your work?
2: Sure. Um, My website is teachandtransform.org. Teach and transform is also my Instagram handle where I share a lot of work online. And I also have a Patreon account too, if people are looking for more one-on-one or like curated support or services.
4: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Liz. It was really great to talk to you. And I think our listeners are really going to learn a lot from this conversation.
2: Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been lovely talking to you. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back, everyone. So, Rachel, I really enjoyed listening to your interview with uh, Liz. I think that this whole topic of DEI is just like rising to the top in our country as a whole, even here in Georgia, where they're like trying to take it out of our colleges and trying to take a page out of Desantis's crazy book. (laughs) I I just thought it was interesting about how, uh, you know, companies are like, oh, if you're going to teach this DEI, then you are going to be able to completely dismantle all of the racism that ever existed <laughs> yeah, in this just one like hour DEI hour. training mm-hmm. that I'm like, you know, because that's what you're yeah. able to do, yeah. right? And I think that's actually indicative of a, a larger like symptom of our country and that Ooh. we think that there's just this snap of a finger mm-hmm. fix. To something that has been rooted and embedded in our society since its birth. Maybe we don't want to
4: talk about that part, so that's why it's yeah. a little hard. We want
1: to cover that up.
4: Yeah, that's, that's yeah. very uncomfortable, Jasmine. I'm sorry. If we could just move on to the toaster joy now and not talk about this, that'd be great. <laughs> I'm just kidding. um No, but you're right. That's the point. Is it's it takes work, and I mean that might be an initial step. And I can say as someone who kind of went through that on my own without like a maybe a different, um, something, a a different spark, a different thing that motivated me to kind of go down that road. It was, it was several things, but sometimes you need those moments from all different places, but a specific DEI training can be very effective and very helpful to kind of start that journey. And I was, I was glad that she talked about that because I think, that's something to recognize, even if if our companies or our employers kind of have these moments, we need to be realistic with our colleagues and everyone else. Like this is not a one and done type situation. You don't go to therapy like one time and you're all fixed.
1: No, it's a continued conversation. And like inclusion means it's not just you go through the training and you go on with your day. It means when, you know, there might be something happens, like you get someone's input and you listen. And is there someone's input I'm not getting right now? It means asking more questions,
0: I think, than it does anything else. And I also think it's important to recognize that DEI training isn't just about black people and white people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that our our country really does have a hard time recognizing that like we're like this, you know, beautiful mosaic of all these different types of people. But when we start talking about race and diversity, equity and inclusion, somehow we get really uh myopic and we only see like black and white. Mm-hmm. It is about mm-hmm. inclusion of everyone all the ingredients in the salad we are including everyone so
1: that we get a better salad like come on
0: no one you know how like little kids when they like when you first go to like a sub place and they're just like i just want meat and cheese and you're like (laughs) we literally could have made that at home yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's it's like come on guys we could do like So much more with this. And I think that that's uh, where we are as a society. We need to understand just how much better it is when we include everyone. Yeah, definitely.
4: But the great thing about Liz is she was born in Korea. She was raised Jewish. I mean, you know, like when someone sees her, they're not, it's not just a a black and white, if you will, issue. I'm, you know, she's kind of introducing something different. And from her perspective as an educator, I think that gives um another kind of level and layer to her understanding of, you know, what what we're all capable of at, at different ages and and how effective this can be uh, if if we have the conversations early and you know, we have these conversations at home. like Erica said, we can't just have them at school. We can't just have them at work. It has to be more of who we are all the time and and accepting it. And then, you know it'll be commonplace, and I truly believe that it will be one day that we will get to that point. But we're at this inflection point right now that's pretty hard and painful. Definitely, and it's okay to admit that it's hard right now. But I think we we keep going for the greater good, and and it will pay off.
0: But we have to fight to be able to keep going because right now the fight yep, is no. You're right. Should we even talk about mm-hmm. diversity, equity, or inclusion at all? Mm-hmm. And your funding is dependent on if you're willing to give mm-hmm. up talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I do think that as a country, we have to be very mindful yeah. that we can't stop talking about it and we can't let these threats um take us to the to the point where, you know, I use my ball analogy. We got to keep pushing the ball up the hill. We cannot take our hands off the ball or it's going to roll back on us. Yeah. So Sisyphus,
4: I mean, yes, it's all yes. we're all Sisyphus. Well, on that note of uh, that we're all going to be doing the same thing every day for the rest of our lives, we would like to end <laughs> on
1: something happy. So,
4: Amanda, what is your toast to joy this week?
1: So, my toast to joy is we had Connie Schultz over at our house, who's been Aww. on the podcast before, but we had her over at our house also because we had a big fundraiser for Sherrod Brown, who is running for re-election for the Senate. And I know I have given some points to Michigan lately on the podcast, and I'm here to give some points. To Ohio, because when we look at the model that Michigan is doing right now, when they are looking at how do we protect workers' rights and civil rights, and those two things are actually not at odds. Those two things go together very well. To me, Sherrod Brown is like the like original workers' rights and civil rights. And they go together. And he has been fighting mm-hmm. for this for decades for Ohioans. So it's just really impressive to kind of uh, to get to hear him and invite him to our house. He's amazing. And just to hear how we've had this model. All along. And I don't know what happened, but I'm glad to see Michigan and other places starting to see like, hey, we can fight for workers and we can fight for civil rights and we can be true progressives and fight for our economy at the same time. They aren't in opposition. And so my toast of joy is to Sherrod and his
0: reelection to the Senate.
1: You're here. Jasmine, what is your toast
0: of joy? So I was trying to decide what my toast of joy was going to be. Um, and I think I am going to toast to being out in the community um, and finally some good weather so that I could do that. And so this weekend I had the opportunity to first lead our Lilburn. burn democrats meeting that we have on on the last saturday of every month but then after that i went to a plant sale and then we had this cool event called the taste of lilburn which was like all the little restaurants and you know in our community and it was the first one and they actually held it at my church um on the grounds of my church um but it was really cool so many people came so much good food to choose from and like some restaurants that i'm like oh i didn't even know we had this in our area. It was just a great weekend, and I'm just honestly, it's been raining so much <laughs> that the fact that we got a day where like the sun was shining, it wasn't super <laughs> hot, and there was stuff to do, everything just kind of worked out uh, perfect. Because you know, in the famous words of Outcast, you can plan a pretty picnic, but you can't predict the weather. <laughs> um, this actually worked out very well.
1: That is so fun. We have a similar like taste of Hudson. We haven't done it a couple, I guess since before the pandemic. And it is so great because the whole community comes out and you never know who you're gonna see. And yep. it's like those unplanned meetings that I love. So
0: fun. I know Jada was like, mom, walk faster so people can stop calling your name. I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is good. I'm you know, people see me out in the community. She's like, I know, but I'm ready to go home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, kind of fair,
4: but also Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> All right, Rachel, what's your Toast of to Joy this week? My Toast of
4: Joy is we attended the first uh, gala of Renew Democracy Initiative in New York on Thursday, and it was just a really lovely evening. Um, so one of my favorite people that I work with at um, RDI is Yvonne Murari. He is a pastor uh, from Zimbabwe and really went through, was just treated horrifically, but he gave an opening speech that was so powerful to me. He talked about the importance of protecting democracy everywhere, because it's much harder when you have to regain your rights than if you keep your rights. And that's been kind of echoing in my head ever since, um, ever since he said it. So sometimes I get very focused on electoral type work or like really like the, the horse race of it, of, of all this, um, of the specific races and how are they going and how could I make a difference in this specific race, but in not taking like the, you know, the thirty five thousand foot view of like this is all for one purpose and that's so that we have democracy. So it is very important that we all support efforts and we all, um, you know, are are supportive of people in other countries, even though we feel very weighed down by the work that we have to do in our country. And what we have to do that we recognize um, other people are really struggling also. And and we have to make sure that we are protecting democracy both here and abroad, Um, because it's a lot of work to do. And as we can see, the forces against it um it can turn pretty quickly uh even in the united states so you can imagine how quickly it can turn in places that ha- don't have such a strong democracy and a longstanding democracy so everyone can be you never know i mean you know we're just a, a generation away from from losing so many things so we have to keep working at it so um that's my of joy and we really appreciate all of you joining us today if you haven't bought your ticket yet for our 100th episode event be sure to do so soon We are so excited to meet our listeners and celebrate 100 episodes with our special guest, Heather Cox-Richardson. The link to purchase tickets is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next week on another episode of The Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red,
3: Wine, and Blue. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson, and our project manager is Lindsay Quist. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red Wine & Blue, follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.